0: If you treat people broken, they act broken, right? But if you look them in their eyes and you treat them like a whole person, that person shows up.
1: Welcome to Athletes Doing Good Podcast. I'm Shelley Stewart, President of Capture Sports Marketing. And I'm sports reporter,
2: Jen Latta. Many are familiar with the term, Mr. Irrelevant, a title bestowed each year on the last pick of the annual NFL Draft. While former NFL linebacker David Vebora may have been Mr. Irrelevant in 2008, today, he is anything but. David gives us a glimpse of his career in the NFL, but more importantly, his life after football as the founder of the Adaptive Training Foundation.
1: He believes that life is about how you play the hand you were dealt and is committed to helping those with physical disabilities see their full potential. Inspiring, passionate, and engaging, David is not just a dealer of hope. He's another athlete doing good. To join Athletes in Doing Good, text ADG2020 to 76278 and donate today. The Athletes Podcast with the most downloads each month will receive the money raised for his or her charity.
2: Well, I think most people, when they hear your name, do think of Mr. Irrelevant. What has that name meant to you, and how has it helped you to do some of the things that you've done?
0: Yeah, I think I always had a chip on my shoulder. I was a skinny quarterback coming out of Eugene, Oregon, that had one Division I offer to go to the University of Idaho, (laughs) so I took it. And I think we only won nine total games in four years at Idaho, right? And that's rough. That's rough. Ohio State, they win nine games in a season, and it's a down year, right? So I became a linebacker, and then it was as I was progressing through my college career, It was like, yeah, he's good, but is he good enough? Does he have to go to Canada to play? I was kind of that, that guy. And so when the Rams drafted me first, I had accomplished a dream of being drafted in the NFL, right? The real sucker is the second-to-last pick because he doesn't get the title of Mr. Irrelevant. All this fun media, and I, I shouldn't say fame, fame with an asterisk. Um, <laughs> But it was really cool because there was this like media circuit, this platform. I remember coming to St. Louis and the community relations department asked me if I'd go and speak at a local elementary, like been there a week. And I said, yeah. And and so as I went there, the first thing as I opened, I said, how many of you guys have ever been the last pick on the playground? Hands were just shooting up, right? I said, well, look, I was the last pick on Sunday night and it's not going to stop me and it's not going to stop you either. So I'm a big believer in, it's about how you play the hand that you're dealt, All I needed was a foot in the door in the NFL, was able to become a starter my rookie year, had a respectable career, certainly did more than some, but a lot less than most. And it's been an awesome platform for all the more significant stuff that I've done post football.
1: And you've done very significant stuff um, post football. Can you share a little bit about your mindset into starting the Adaptive Training Foundation?
0: Yeah, the gym has always been my sanctuary, Shelly. I think that hard work, was how I would foster success. There were some people that were more talented than me, but I knew that that sweat equity was where I would discover parts of me that were indestructible and that I could surpass that more talented person through hard work. So as I retired from the league, it was crazy. I had the shoulder injury. I didn't cope well, right? My identity crisis, as many of the athletes transitioning and not knowing what's next, was, it was easier to cope with the opiates and the pain pills that I was that I was receiving than it was to really look at myself and say, who's David without football? What are my gifts? How do they apply outside of football? And where can I find that new why, that new purpose? So the gym, again, was this opportunity for me to hopefully pay forward some of the things that I learned in human performance. I was training athletes, college athletes, getting ready for the combine or Olympic athletes. And then Staff Sergeant Travis Mills walked into my gym, quadruple amputee. One of five living that was combat injured, got blown up, lost all four limbs on impact, which is mind blowing. And through medical advances, he were able to save his life and all these different things. And so he comes walking in the gym and I just like the hot chick at the bar walked right up to him. And I'm like, bro, when was the last time you worked out? You know, he made a couple of jokes as any army vet would. And, and he said, dude, I want to make you feel like a asshole. I don't have arms and legs. <laughs> what do you mean work out? And so, um, you know, he asked if I had experience I said no, but I, I think it was the genuine nature of the excitement or curiosity to see what was possible. He felt that I think as, as warriors, now granted, these guys did the real thing. You know, we call the football field, the gridiron, the battlefield. We just put on a helmet and run down the field. These guys and gals do the real thing. So for him, it was like. How do you tap back into a physicality as that alpha or as that apex again? And so it it wasn't long until he's doing a hundred-pound sled pulls across the gym, and all of my NFL guys are like, Oh, my pinky toe's not sore anymore. (laughs) I thought I was okay, I'm good. I'm good. And so again, everybody I realized, whoa, through access for him and inclusion for all, perspectives shifted, people found a different gear beyond their known capacity. And I just believe that when we find You know, the old adage, like when somebody finally ran the four minute mile, then all of a sudden it was eclipsed again and again and again and again. Same thing is true here. As soon as you see it, all of a sudden you can't unsee it and the inspiration is contagious and it just happens to capture everybody. So that's what really sparked the why for founding a nonprofit gym that trains people with physical disabilities for no cost, for over 200 people through a nine week program, and they've truly defied impossible and redefined their lives.
2: Well, you just mentioned inspiration. I'm curious if there's a story or a particular person who touched you deeper than most, whose experiences, whether it be overseas serving this country, were so profound and what they overcame was so incredible that you just, whenever you think about your mission, it's a person that pops in your head.
0: Yeah, Jen, there's 200 of them. Uh, (laughs) Like like, it's it's like asking your uh, parent to show a picture of a kid, right? They're never going to show you. But if I'm going to zero in on one, um, well, gosh, so I got to share too. They're both Marines. My grandfather served Marines. Well, I have three generations of Marines in my family. My grandfather served in three wars, 31 years in the Corps. Trust me, had I not worn that silly football helmet, I'd have been a Marine. The first is Brian Aft. Corporal Brian Aft it was featured in the Starbucks Upstanders documentary, which got 100 million views in like a week, and Obama flew us to the White House, and then Travis and I went on Ellen, and President Bush came, and just crazy stuff when, again, you fall into your why in a way that is, is really about you know, using what you have to benefit others, deal hope to others. So Brian, I was having a rough day at work. This is a true story. And I was driving home fast. Trying to cut through a parking lot to miss a red light, totally legal. And as I, drive, as I was driving through, it was like in my head, it was like, I'm late. You know, my wife had called, the girls were screaming on the other line, my kids, like all this stuff. And so I was rushing and, and I saw out of the corner of my eye, this guy without legs. In my gut, it was like, you have to stop. And thank God I did because I slammed on the brakes. I jumped out of the car. I asked him to work out, gave him my card, and he showed up the next day, not knowing, look, this guy was addicted to heroin had just got out of a detox, his second detox for heroin. And he was going to bed every night with a loaded pistol next to him. It was suicidal. And you fast forward now, um, well, about six months or a year after training, one of the touching moments was my oldest daughter was three at the time. And she was too scared to go up and trick or treat in her outfit. But she sat on Brian Aft, who's a double above knee amputee, sat on his lap and he would push her up to go. And, and is so. Give me goosebumps. It's amazing. My kids don't see disability. Like if there's anything I've left for them, they, they don't see disability. They see people as people. And we often say at the gym, if you treat people broken, they act broken, right? But if you look them in their eyes and you treat them like a whole person, that person shows up. I don't care if that's around homelessness or, or disability or whatever. We, we've taught them not to look away from someone in pain, but to offer compassion because compassion interrupts. And it interrupted me that day enough to stop for Brian. But the truth is, is I think we all have the capacity to deal hope when we can pause and realize that people are are an extension of us every the synonymous human experience right jen you've endured scars maybe i don't see them visibly right but they're things that have certainly defined you and graduated you onto a better version of yourself that's just what we do in the ecosystem of the gym and it really is sweat psychology
2: so that was Brian. You said there
1: was another one as well.
0: Yeah, okay. Thank you since you brought it up. <laughs>
1: She's calling you out.
0: <laughs> oh, so this is a true story. I'm walking into a 7-Eleven with a buddy of mine, combat injured Marine, Jacob Schick. Uh, you guys may know Jake. Jake's uh, the Marine who was on American Sniper, who's also in A Star is Born. He, him and Bradley Cooper are boys, so we call him Hollywood Jake now. Um, <laughs> but we're walking into 7-Eleven. It's probably almost midnight. I'm sure we were going to buy something really healthy. But as we're walking in, a homeless guy runs up and he's begging for money. And I'll be honest with you, I totally wrote him off and I was walking into the 7-Eleven. As I turned back, I see Jake stop for this guy. So I doubled back and I overheard this conversation. Jake reaches into his pocket, pulls out a $5 bill, goes to hand it to the man. The man grabs it, but the man hasn't looked up in my friend's eyes yet, he's, he's had his head down. And as he grabs the bill, he goes to pull it away, but he realizes the bill's not coming with him. So as, he, as he's forced to look up and look at my buddy in his eyes, My friend Jake says, you're worth it. Let's go of the bill. The man takes two steps toward me, toward the front door, but then doubles back and looks Jake in his eyes and says, what would you say to me? Jake really casually reaches down, grabs his pants leg, reaches up and pulls his pants leg up, revealing his prosthetic limb, right? A foot that he left in Iraq serving our country. And he says, what I did for this country, I did for you. You're worth it and you're worth that money. Dude. In this moment, the man takes the bill, he walks not into 7 Eleven, but down the, down the sidewalk and around the corner out of sight. And again, it had nothing to do with the amount of money, right? It had everything to do with looking at this man and pouring into him as a human. And I watched hope being dealt in a way in that moment that was no small thing, not for me, right? Not for this man. So I think that is the message of our gym, the message to be as a leader or some of the veterans, if you go up to him and say, Thank you for your service. How do you live in a way that pays tribute to what they serve for, not just some patronizing words when it's convenient for you, right? And that's where I think that if more people would just be willing to step up and ask the curious question that's crossing their mind, it would diffuse a lot of exclusiveness and or you know, walls or, or barriers that people put up socially.
1: When you were growing up, did you come from a family of philanthropy? Were you able to experience that at a young age? Because I see even in the short time that I have known you, that it, it just continues on and on and on. So I'm trying to figure out where, where did it all come from?
0: I think it came from growing up watching my parents. They're a great example. On our way to church in our old white Plymouth Voyager van, we would pick people up. And oftentimes they were homeless or oftentimes they had disabilities, intellectual or physical. And I remember one day after church getting into our car where a couple who was homeless had sat and the smell was so bad. I remember me and my sister were complaining and I'll never forget this because my dad, I'm sure it was not quite this advanced or aggressive, but he like whipped it into this like (laughs) car wash deal. And we sister and I got to, Clean out and and car and shampoo and vacuum off these these things and and the lesson was, hey, it's not up for us to judge what other people are going through. It's for us to make sure that we show them the love that is unconditional that we've been so grateful to be able to receive. And so I, I saw that often in my life, and I think just intuitively, I've always felt the need to champion the underdog. I opened this call with talking about having a chip on my shoulder, being Mr. Irrelevant. I'm all about you know believing in people till they can believe in themselves. My why is to help people close the gap between who they thought they were and who they're supposed to be. Only they can tell you that, but I want to be there to foster and witness that transition.
2: You'll have to forgive me. I'm writing things down because you keep saying profound <laughs> things.
1: <on> the- uh, <laughs> Wait, um, Jen, Jen, before your question, Dave, can you just tell her about your favorite car that you Ha?
0: Yes, against <laughs> my wife's. Best wishes. Um, So when I went to the Rams, I used to do this segment on the billboard on the big screen at halftime. And it was called me and my ride. And it's, you know, guys are doing their Aston Martins and Ferraris. And I went on Craigslist and I bought a 1984 Chrysler, LeBaron town and country wood paneled convertible uh, for 1500 bucks. And this thing idled at like 8,000 RPMs. Like I'd ballet it at freaking Ruth Chris and it'd be smoking out everybody else in ballet. But it it kind of became this persona around St. Louis. (laughs) When I went to Seattle, it sat in my boy Danny Amendola's driveway for a year. Wasn't running. I shipped it without asking my wife out to California. You know, when you're shipping a car across, you know, the nation for a thousand bucks and it's not worth, you know, even a hundred bucks, you get a little bit of kickback. But yeah, it, it, I haven't, I've hardly restored it. I've kept it operable to the point that there's nothing on the dash lights up. I don't know how much gas is in it, but it does fire up. My staff is part of a team building exercise the other day, pushed it from the gym to my house, 2.2 miles, mostly because they couldn't get it started. I really oh no. <laughs> it's free fitness though, and we bonded to it, so.
2: What does that car represent for you? <laughs>
0: I think, you know, if I was born in a different era, I'd be a 70s guy. I'd have a sweet 70s stash with the long hair. i wear a fedora hat in it. I think it's, it's this timeless classic. My girls love it. The other day, my oldest was like, Daddy, when I get my license, can I have the Woody? I was like, oh, you know, and Sarah was like, absolutely not. I think it's a death trap. <laughs> The other day, she's like, you know, we pay 500 bucks a year for insurance on that, and it doesn't run. I was like, that's really cheap. I was like, 500 bucks? That seems really manageable. She was like, not what I meant.
1: They've done Christmas cards with it, Jen. Like, it's, it's the real deal. Even just sitting with you for these last few moments, it has been
2: incredibly inspiring. You have an energy that translates through the screen, through the speakers. I'm certain that people are picking up on it. We are in unprecedented times and and a lot of people are struggling right now what would your message be to people who are at the end of their rope have already tied a knot aren't sure how much longer they can hang on and because of the uncertainty and the anxiety in our world right now
0: great question i think it's okay to not be okay And and i think you know if you're looking at two sort of very buzzsaw topics right now you have social injustice racial injustice and you have COVID, you know, with the population that we serve at the gym, people who have experienced trauma, catastrophe, physical disability, a crazy rate, they're, they're very uh, understandable about that rug being pulled out. And so they're a great person to look to, right? Like when you get diagnosed with Parkinson's at 32, and you're now 42, and you're looking at this instance in the in the landscape of society, it's kind of like, whoa, if I can think back to the panic and the unconscious reactions that I had then, perhaps today I can be better about consciously responding in a way that allows me to pause. And again, especially around the racial injustice, like I've always said, you don't build a bridge to meet in the middle. You build a bridge to go to the other person's side, to walk around, to explore. You may not understand it. You may not like it. But as you come back to your side, there's hopefully space. There's space for a conversation. There's hopefully enough mutual respect that you can acknowledge what the other person Season feels, and I think we all can say, "Yeah, we stand for freedom, justice, and equality." It's easy to make a Twitter rant, but it's really about—and I personally think that it—white people in private, those conversations are where you're going to get the actual change and the extension of action and involvement out in the greater culture, not just going to your black friends or going to your, you know, your your people of color and being like, "How do how do I do this to change?" It's like it's hearing that. But then being able to assimilate it and be able to be the change that you seek. If you care deeply about you know, your car or this chair or whatever it is, you can't expect somebody else to take care of it. So if we care about this country, let's be the change that we seek. I know that's cliche, but I feel like that's the only way. It, it, it doesn't need to feel – here's what I think. I think it can be intense, but it doesn't have to be painful. It could be people owning their side of the street and being okay having an open mindset to hear something that allows that trajectory to change. I think too often we get so, well, which side are you on? Can you be for good cops, but against the cops that did that to George Floyd? Yes. Can you be for the peaceful protest, but against the rioters and the looters? Yes. Can you be, you know, and I could go on and on. It's just, it seems so... You know, unique to pigeonhole somebody in one specific sector and magnify it to the degree that you make them a villain when it should be inclusive and and. and.
2: So, do you have suggestions for people who are struggling?
0: Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is remember to pour into yourself. There's a healthy selfish. We can become martyrs for the causes of others to the degree that you burn out, that you pour from an empty cup. In my instance, and this is a true story. It was about two years into what I was doing, so probably 2016. And I was trying to still manage my for-profit gym. I was providing free training for up to about 30 adaptive athletes at the same time, sometimes sleeping on yoga mats at the gym because I had about a 45-minute commute at the time. And I came home at like 2 a.m. one night, and there's one light on over the kitchen table, it was like interrogation room. I literally was like, oh, it's not my wife sitting there. I'm like, okay, and I sat down, and, and she didn't say this as a dig. She said, do I have to be missing an arm or a leg for you to put the same type of focus and attention on me and your family? <sighs> oh, But it, it was just, she was stating the truth. I was blinded by my passion, so excited about what I was building that I was blinded to this other fact. And so I think that's the, that's the point is if you're not able to show up as your best self because you're distracting yourself by serving others to the degree that it's unhealthy, that's going to catch up to you. I think, you know, mind, body, and spirit, how are you pouring into yourself? If you're spending, I love the new screen time deal on the iPhone that tells you where you spent your time oh, I, I don't want to post about it because it's shocking, right? Right. But look, look at how you're spending your time. Are you on social media or on interfaces where six to 10 hours a week, that's what can you do with that time? So move your body, grow, learn, look at something in an ecosystem or an environment that is completely left field for you. And then be open to having hard conversations and then listen in a way that is present with people, treating people as people. And you're going to discover... A whole lot more that you thought that you didn't think you had in common.
1: I love that. I love it. Thank you for joining us. I thank you for sharing your story. I have such mad respect for you for what you've done off the field and the person that you are um off the field than than on the field. So I thank, thank you. you, my friend.
0: Well, thank you to you guys. I'm always honored when people are using their platform. Quick do on leadership. My favorite definition of leader is by a guy named Napoleon Bonaparte. Not a really great guy to quote super often. But in, in this instance, he said that a leader is a dealer of hope. And I think you've heard me reference that a few times today. So to me, your gifts match somebody's needs. And it's often the gift that you didn't want, you didn't ask for, but it's kind of that scar you were dealt or the adversity that you faced, the things that you've been through. Probably the last thing you would ever list on a resume. But if you can decide how you use that to help somebody avoid a similar scar or help them endure something they're going through, that's real purpose. And so, you know, if you're head down, eyes closed, hands closed, you can't catch whatever is right in front of you. If your eye, eyes up, you know, hands open, head up, you can see with x-ray vision where there's a, a place and a space to hold the door for somebody. That may be the, the opportunity that they get hope dealt to them in that day. And that might be it. So don't wait to pass the buck. Don't marginalize yourself as that leader, as that hope dealer. Take it in stride for the fact that you're built for it. And if not you, then who? And as is, is the result of the last six years, I've lived my life that way. It's been a bit Forrest Gumpian, as Shelly knows. Like I wake up and I'm, you know, running down this field or I'm climbing Kilimanjaro or doing these things. But that's, that's the beauty of, I think... What the universe or God provides for us in an opportunity to discover the lessons of our pain. because you really you find the purpose in your pain and you preach from your pain.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Athletes Doing Good. Go to Capturesportsmarketing.com to listen to other interviews to hear stories about the person behind the player and the people behind the team who are making an impact on others. To join
2: athletes in doing good, text ADG2020 to 76278 and donate today. The athletes podcast with the most downloads each month will receive the money raised for his or her charity.